Well, our passage of study this morning is once again found there in the Gospel of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then you find Luke, particularly verses 36 to verse 50. And this encounter between a sinful woman and the Savior of the world in the home of a self-satisfied, self-righteous Pharisee by the name of Simon, we learn in the text, without question is one of the most well-known and I believe one of the most important incidents recorded in any of the four Gospels. It is yet another encounter, now our third in this new series here in 2024, revolving around a single but significant question that actually creeps into the very end of the text. Who is this man? Who is Jesus Christ? Again, we noted there in Luke 7, verse 49, that this urgent and somewhat eternal question is on the lips of those that had been sharing an evening meal with the Messiah, though they didn't know him by that. They were stunned and shocked by an intensely personal display of devotion on the part of that sinful woman. When then they say, the text tells us in verse 49, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? By the way, it's probably necessary to note that this particular incident, while quite similar in many ways, is discernibly different from another encounter involving a sinful woman and Jesus' anointing. That story is located in Mark chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. It's also found in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, and John 12, verses 1 to 8. I take those stories as all talking about the same event, which actually occurred quite a bit later in Jesus' earthly ministry in the city of Bethany, where Lazarus was raised, by the way, and just prior to Christ's triumphal entry there into Jerusalem. But this story, found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, occurs relatively early on in Jesus' ministry. It occurs in the northern area, the region around the Galilee, and it occurs in the house of a man named Simon. Again, that story recorded by Matthew and Mark and John occurred in a house belonging to Simon the leper, we find in Mark 14, verse 3. But this story, our story, takes place in Simon the Pharisee's house, by the way. That shouldn't trouble you as if it's some biblical error, because the name Simon is much like the name Bill or Steve in our culture today. It's a relatively common name, or it was a common name in the ancient uh, Near East area. There are nearly a dozen Simons in the New Testament, for example. So we needn't get tripped up over this alleged discrepancy, for there is no discrepancy at all. But lastly, one important distinction is that that story, the other story from Matthew, Mark, and John regarding Jesus' anointing involves someone pouring costly perfume on Jesus' head, you might remember. But our story today involving the woman anointing Jesus' feet, I think undoubtedly as it would be these divine feet that would soon walk the long and difficult road all the way up to Jerusalem where he would suffer and he would die for our sins. 
I think that's one of the reasons why we find his head anointed in a later passage and his feet anointed in this one. So that's the passage, and I'm going to do what Pastor Dan does and alliterate my way all through this, this text. What about the party? What about the party? Luke tells us in verse 36 that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Some of us might say, ooh, boo, the Pharisees. Well, interesting, this is not the only dinner invitation from a Pharisee that Jesus accepts in Luke's gospel. In fact, just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 11, verse 37, we read of another instance as tensions are mounting higher and higher between Jesus and this religious and politically influential group where Christ eats with and in the presence of his very enemies. Sort of makes me think of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Moreover, in Luke 14... Verse 1, we are told that one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Again, on that occasion, Jesus performed a miracle, even the healing of a man with a medical condition, which was described as dropsy on the Sabbath, much to the dismay of those self-righteous hosts. But in any event, the point to be made back here in Luke chapter 7 is that Jesus, noticed, willingly accepted a dinner invitation from one particular Pharisee whose name was Simon. This was very likely late Friday evening, perhaps late Saturday evening. It may have been a Sabbath meal. This was very common to invite a rabbi or a teacher into one's home to celebrate Sabbath. It might have been a special banquet invitation that we don't really know what the occasion was. We don't really know, and it doesn't really matter ultimately. What is relevant is Jesus' amazing openness and his compassion to share, even to spend a whole evening, to spend time in the home of a man who was quite clearly unconvinced as to his identity. Sort of makes me... Think about how we are to be. Jesus' mission of salvation involved all kinds of targets, the obvious and the less so. By the way, again, this important encounter, I think, is set up for us in a unique way by Luke. I say unique, but I also mean interesting and intentional way. You see, Jesus evidently by this point was gaining quite a reputation as being a party preacher, a party goer. In Luke 7, verse 33, Jesus is uh, talking to some of John the Baptist's disciples amid the crowds who were quite clearly concerned about Jesus' social schedule. You need to do some more teaching in the synagogues and a little less partying at people's homes. And so we read, in fact, just prior to this party in Simon the Pharisee's house, we read these words, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus' presence, even in the mere context here at Simon's party, is, a, is clearly a demonstration of divine wisdom, as 
uh, counter to the world's wisdom. Divine wisdom mixed with divine mercy for all kinds of sinners. Thankfully, for the self-righteous and the streetwalker, for the legalist and the lady of the night, Jesus came to rescue us all. Now, such a party, we understand from our study of first century Jewish backgrounds, would have certainly had a private guest list, sort of VIP invites for Simon. Perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not for some of us, Jesus and a few of his disciples would have been formally invited by Simon for an evening of delicious food and stimulating conversation. This would have likely been, again, a whole evening affair, not just a dine and dash moment. Jesus, as highly visible, a, a traveling teacher, if you will, would have been invited to share his thoughts on current events around Palestine and his interpretations of various religious laws, which Simon the Pharisee would have certainly been interested in knowing. But in addition to Simon's friends and family that night, and those specially invited like Christ and his disciples, who would have had a, 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 a name placard at the table, if you will, a place at the, to be able to recline by the table, Simon's home would have also been an open venue for the public that evening. That is, after they were reclining at table and settled, Simon's house servants very likely would have permitted public observers, even the poor from the community, to take the standing room only section around the perimeter of Simon's uh, dining room, you might say, or even perhaps uh, in the adjacent courtyard of his home. These welcomed but uninvited guests were expected to keep their distance from the main activity in the house while also being permitted to, to nibble on the latest town gossip or teaching, and perhaps even to help themselves to some leftover falafel that everyone else uh, maybe had, had had their fill. In short, such a party was a social event, and clearly Jesus would have been the headliner for the evening's entertainment. I think we need to get that as the sense of the scene in Luke 7. So what do we know about this man, Simon? Well, truthfully, we don't know a whole lot about him. We know that clearly Simon is evidently curious, but ultimately, at this point, unconvinced of Jesus's identity. Now, the cynics among us might accuse Simon of having a devious agenda, and perhaps to some degree he did, even downright having some hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe this you think is a disingenuous invitation on Simon's part. He's only trying to trap him. Hey, Lord, watch out for the trap. That's the reputation of the Pharisees for us in the 21st century, and again, well-deserved. But to me, I don't think we necessarily have to view Simon through such a homicidal lens, as if he's already trying to take Jesus out. Again, this was still relatively early on in Jesus's public ministry, there were sure, surely skirmishes between Jesus and his religious opponents, but there was not yet an all-out war declared between them. That would happen later on. Personally, I'm of the opinion that Simon was genuinely skeptical, yet spiritually curious about who Jesus was. That's my opinion. It was an honest invitation to a fun night of dinner. But through his actions, or perhaps we could say his inactions that we discover in the scene, 
we learn that Simon really wasn't all that warm to Christ. Who knows? Perhaps this Simon would have been numbered among all those Pharisees that we read about in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, some years later, several years later at this point, who evidently had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah. Imagine this night perhaps making such an impact on Simon the Pharisee. The truth is we don't know. But we do know that he is, and here's our third P, he's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. Again, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees active and operating at this time in the first century. Like the sinful woman who we'll turn to in just a moment, Simon, you see, had a reputation to uphold. Now, the name Pharisee is not a Greek word. It's really a Hebrew word, and it means separated ones. The Pharisees were the separate ones. They were the holy rollers of the first century, you might say. This order of the separated ones sprung up during the intertestamental period. That's a fancy way of saying that 400-year gap between Malachi and Matthew. The Pharisees were likely the largest and thus perhaps the most influential of the religious and political groups numbered in Jesus' day, more so even than the Sadducees and the Essenes, the Pharisees really had the town's ear. They believed in the resurrection, unlike the Sadducees. They believed in the existence of angels and demons, again, unlike the Sadducees. They even believed in a form of predestination, as well as some measure of free will in terms of life. And particularly, they believed in the validity of both the written and the oral law. And I think that's what Simon was after. Jesus, what do you think about our law? Not so much God's law, but our oral law. Look, Simon, even as a Pharisee, and don't miss this, understood himself to be a sinner. He thought he was a sinner. No, he knew he was a sinner and in need of God's grace. The problem for Simon was he just thought, along with the rest of his class of separated ones, that he had the inside track to salvation, to eternal life, based upon his prodigious knowledge of the Scriptures and his commitment to strict obedience. Remember Jesus' famous rebuke of the Pharisees, you think you have eternal life because you know the Scriptures, but you know neither life nor the gospel, Jesus says to him. To them. In fact, it's not hard when reading Luke 7 to think of another scene involving a Pharisee later in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, and the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're praying. A part of that story, of course, is where the, uh, the Pharisee is praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That prayer really epitomizes the proud heart of the Pharisees. Well, standing against the wall that evening in Simon's beautiful home was another individual, this one a prostitute, perhaps. And listen, it's here in Luke's story that this passage takes a sudden and quite surprising turn. We pick up in verse 37 with one of Luke's sort of narrative markers, and behold. In other words, it's a way for us to say, sit up and pay attention. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now again, clearly, this woman had a reputation. That's one of the obvious things that Luke's narrative draws attention to. People knew who she was. She was the sinful woman. Commentator G. Campbell Morgan notes that the contrast, the great contrast between the Pharisee and the prostitute is like this, that these two were the extreme representatives of the social scale. At polls, at the polls asunder, he, he writes, I do not know and I cannot tell you the name of the street in which Simon lived or the place where the woman had had uh, where she perhaps called home, but I am perfectly certain that they were at the extreme ends of the city. Here was a man of the suburbs and a woman out of the slum. Here was a man representing the boulevards and she representing the red light district. They were in the same house and the reason for their being there was the same. It was Jesus. But they were miles apart. Now look, we don't know this woman's name and I'll dispel the myth right now. This is very likely not Mary Magdalene. For in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 8, verse 2, we are first introduced to Mary Magdalene. This woman's identity, it's really not bound up in her name, but in what happens next. She is revealed to us in two very distinct ways. First, again, apparently everyone in town knew she was a sinner. She had a scandalous reputation. It was very likely meant that she was a prostitute. Again, we cannot be sure of that. At the very least, such a description lumped her in, as Robert Stein in his commentary says, with the tax collectors, the tanners, the camel drivers, the custom collectors, and among those who are considered ceremonially impure because of their vocations and could thus be labeled as sinners. She was in a class of sinful to herself. This woman had a shameful past, but I want to underscore for you, not the shameful, but the word past, and you'll see why in just a few moments. More than that, though, for Luke, this woman is forever noteworthy on account of her radical display of personal and intimate worship at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ right here in Simon's house. She is the epitome of being uninhibited with one's devotion and worship. <clears throat> you see, folks, here's where we actually learn something even more revealing about Simon the Pharisee and his apparent cynicism and contempt for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in an ancient Near Eastern home, when an honored guest would arrive for an evening meal, the master of the house would have greeted his guests in several specific and tangible ways. It's important to keep these in mind. First, every dinner guest would have had their feet washed, more, most likely by a servant of the master's house. 
probably not by the master himself, which makes Jesus' willingness to serve his disciples' feet show so shocking in and of itself in John chapter 13. You've got to remember that sanitation was not at the top of the list in the first century. The streets in Simon's neighborhood were dirty and dusty and full of dung. They were full of trash and garbage. It is likely that Jesus' feet would have trekked through animal refuse and other garbage before entering Simon's home that very night. Have you ever stopped to think about this? That the God who made all things willingly condescended to walk through poop for us. Have you ever thought about that? It's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did for us. That's the kind of God that we serve and that who loves us. Well, listen, Simon had ignored Jesus's feet, but Luke tells us that this sinful woman had washed his feet, and the language actually describes it as a torrential flood. She had flooded the master's feet with her tears. It was not a trickle of devotion. It was a flood of devotion and worship. We'll understand in the second place that in addition to washing one's feet, it was also customary for an ancient Near Eastern host to welcome his honored guest with a friendly kiss. Some European cultures still have this today, but you you better not do that to me, right? (laughs) Well, Simon had not only completely ignored Jesus' feet, but he had given Jesus no kiss either. This was... A slight. Now, a friendly greeting, such as a kiss, was not completely mandatory in that day, but its absence was revealing. Its absence was revealing. In contrast, though, we are told specifically that this woman, again, a sinful woman, had not ceased kissing Jesus' feet the entire evening. By the way, and this is awesome. I just found this out this week in my study. I love it. The same phrase or the same construction of words that she had not ceased kissing his feet is actually found in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, in the parable of the prodigal son, when the father comes up to his prodigal who has returned and he kisses him. That's the exact same idea right here in Luke chapter 7. I love it when the Lord shows you these sorts of things in in your Bible study. It's so beautiful. Thank you, Jesus. Well, listen, finally, Luke reveals that Simon had offered Jesus not only no water for his feet and no kiss for his face, but also no fragrant oil for his head when he entered the house. Now, again, Old Spice wasn't around, guys. You have to understand the scene. People walking around from place to place, you got sort of ripe and a little smelly. And so the oil would have certainly been a a bit of fragrant mask to tolerate the meal a little bit better in Simon's home. But Simon didn't even do that. Simon would have surely called, would be surely have been called out by Judith Martin, aka Mrs. Manners, for his lack of courtesy to Christ. You see, he had invited Jesus over to his house for supper, but he had totally closed his his heart off to the Lord. That's really the scene, the gist of the scene. But conversely, this sinful woman, after washing Jesus' feet with her tears, then 
probably, maybe already, but at least letting down her hair, which would have been scandalous in and of itself, to dry his feet with her hair, and then smothering his toes with kisses profusely, had anointed Jesus' feet with costly perfume that she was carrying around. I wonder, as I sat in my office this week, I wondered how many of Simon's house guests would have embarrassingly recognized that particular fragrance, having frequented that prostitute. Well, Simon's sanctimonious and self-righteous sensibilities could no longer be contained. In a flash, his abject disrespect for Jesus and his utter disdain for this woman's intimate display of worship and sacrifice collided to form a thought. But he made a miscalculation. God can read your mind, friends, just so you know. And that thought is exposing and revealing. Verse 39 tells us of the thought. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who this is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, prophet may be in the sense of kind of knowing what's coming down the pike, but Maybe also just the sense of a holy man, a righteous man. If this man were a man of God, he would know what kind of woman this is. You see, Simon is perplexed by Jesus, but convinced he is no prophet. If he were a righteous man, if he were truly God in the flesh, then Jesus would know all about this woman's sinful, sordid, shameful past. And he would rebuke her. He would rebuff her. He would not allow her to approach him. That's what holy men do, Simon thought. Simon is stunned by this scandalous display of devotion and is equally shocked at Jesus' willingness to receive it. He is more disgusted by this sinful woman's courageous devotion than he is by his own utter lack of decorum. Through the humble display of this sinner, we actually learn of of Simon's true hypocrisy. So we've seen the passage, the party, the Pharisee, the prostitute. We come fifthly to the parable. Beloved, we must not forget why Jesus is in Simon's house that night. Luke 19.10 really captures the whole reason for the book of Luke. It says simply, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus was on a rescue mission. Between Simon and the sinful woman there in the room, there was still a lost person in the place, but it wasn't the sinful woman. It was the self-righteous Pharisee. You see, towards the end of this scene, when Jesus finally acknowledges this humble display of PDA, which if you don't know what PDA means, public display of affection, I'm not sure if that's kept up. Kids might not know it these days. Older people do. Jesus actually points out that the woman had entered Simon's house in a state of forgiveness. And this is very important to grasp. A better translation of verse 47 would read something like this. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. The reason I say that is the verb here in the passage is in a perfect tense. And a perfect tense verb is a verb that is referring to something in the past with continuing effect into the present. Why is this so relevant? 
It is not this woman's incredible display of devotion that saves her. She wasn't forgiven that night because she washed Jesus' feet or because she kissed them profusely or because she anointed them with oil. Rather, she came boldly to express her complete devotion and love for Jesus because she was forgiven. And that is the glimpse of the gospel. That's the gospel. The woman's display of devotion was the result of radical grace, not the root of it, not the cause of it. That's the gospel. I don't know when she was saved, and I don't care when she was saved, but it's glorious that she was saved because that's what Jesus does for us. No, Jesus was in Simon's house, but he really wanted to be in Simon's heart. He wanted to come home to Simon, not just share a meal with him. See, Simon had, uh, so he told Simon a story, a parable, to illustrate the real economics of divine grace and forgiveness. Simon, Jesus says, can I tell you something? Perhaps he sees the redness under Simon's collar. And so Simon says, go ahead, teacher. Again, not a warm term. Sure, teacher, go ahead, teach on. Well, Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. Now, a denarius was essentially, as many of you know, the equivalent of a day's full earnings, a day's wage for a common laborer. So understand what Jesus is describing here. Two men owe a debt. There's not one debtor, there are two, but one's debt was 500 days wages, and the other's debt was 50 days wages. That's 10 times the debt for one of these particular debtors. And verse 42 says, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them, Simon, would love him more? We can already feel that secondhand embarrassment for Simon. He knows he has been exposed. Perhaps his face started to flush even more in that very moment. But I want you to note his response in verse 43. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's the little Pharisee in all of us who says, well, I suppose this or that. I I suppose, God, you are Lord over that area of my life and this one. I suppose... Really? Listen, even here we can sense Simon's reticence, his reluctance. Even now, Simon's self-righteous spirit won't fully embrace the grace of God on humble display and radical display in front of him. Well, Jesus, I, I suppose it's the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Hear this. It isn't porn or drugs, or partying that keeps most people from accepting Jesus. It's pride. It's self-satisfaction. It's refusing to admit that your 500 denarii of debt make you a million miles from God. That's what keeps most of us away from God. Oh, we don't do the Mount Rushmore sins, but even one little lie is enough to remove us from the perfect, pristine, pure pure presence of an almighty God forever. 
Don't, on the one hand, magnify your sin, and on the other, don't minimize it either. Because Jesus came to pay for it all. He came to pay for whatever size debt you think you owe. Because any debt before God, any deficiency of righteousness is enough to split hell wide open. Verse 43 says, Simon, you judged correctly. And then I think perhaps for the very first time in the entire counter, we have to use a little sanctified imagination in these ways, Jesus turns to look at the woman. For the first time, verse 44 says that turning to the woman, he said to Simon, almost imagine in your, in your mind's eye that Jesus has been reclining toward the table, looking at Simon, looking at the others, eating his meal, and then he's leaning on his left arm and he's looking over his shoulders at the woman who's been working on his feet all night. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave, no, gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, you gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon, I tell you, therefore, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And I say, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon denied that Jesus was a prophet because to his line of thinking, if Jesus were truly a prophet, he would have known this woman's reputation and would have refused her act of worship. But friends, Jesus did see her. Simon was the blind one. Simon could not see her. Simon was the blind one who could not see beyond this woman's past, her past mistakes, her past sin, her past Shame. Simon was blinded by his own self-righteous pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. The tragic reality that evening was that Simon couldn't see how much he had in common with that lowly prostitute. They were both debtors before a holy and perfect God who was sitting at supper with them. And more than that, he couldn't see how much Jesus loved him how he invited, he accepted Simon's invitation and wanted to be in relationship with Simon right there in his very own house. Well, our last point is that word, point. What is the point of this story, friends? On one level, the point of this parable and this scene is quite simple. That the greatest displays of love come from the greatest experiences of forgiveness. The greatest displays of love often come from the greatest experiences of forgiveness. The sinful woman's expression of radical love and devotion was the result of her encounter with God's grace to forgive her sin with Christ, through Christ. And again, we don't know when that happened, where that happened, or how that happened, but we know the massive relief that she must have uh, experienced. And you might be here this morning saying, you know what? 
I really wasn't that bad. I'm certainly not like the guy down the street who cusses like a sailor. I'm certainly not like my boss who verbally abuses me every other day. Friend, don't diminish your debt before God. But if you are in Christ, do not magnify your past misery before him either. He has canceled it. It is paid in full. You are free and you are pardoned. You can serve him without shame. He changes lives one encounter at a time. You just have to fall on your face and wipe his feet and tell him how much he's done for you. Again, verse 47 he says, He who is forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven many sins loves much. For us, most of us in this room, I would imagine most of us know, know Jesus in this room. And I'm so grateful, and we should all be so grateful that that's the case. But the danger for us is not so much missing sort of the magnificence of Jesus' mercy to the sinful woman, but it's, it's missing now how we can so often act like Simon the Pharisee. And we can begin to prejudge who should have table fellowship with Jesus and who shouldn't. Because guess what? There are invitations still yet to be given out. And we're the ones delivering the invitations. And so before we go prejudging who should get the invitation or not, just remember where you were when that invitation came and what it's done in your life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this scene, the ultimate test of our Christian profession is love. The proof of our love is provided by the actions of our lives. You see, Simon genuinely believed, I think he genuinely believed that his love for God as evidenced by his knowledge of the scriptures and his observance of God's commands and his adherence to the Pharisaical traditions was the basis of God's love for him. But he was oh so wrong. The sinful woman whose actions that night were the very antithesis of acceptable social norms demonstrated that no, actually it is Jesus' love and his forgiveness for us, his death and resurrection that enables us to effectively love him in response. And a radical love it should be. It's easy to be orthodox, to believe the right things, and yet close our hearts off to Jesus. I am so afraid that the contemporary church is full of Pharisees. It's easy to be busy doing religious things, even entertaining VIPs, and yet miss out on real authentic devotion to Jesus Christ. It's easy to hide behind a thin veneer of Christian virtue, church attendance, and tithing and serving others when it's convenient, and yet still have a heart that is missing an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. Perhaps somehow you've been invited in here and you really aren't sure if you know Jesus. Can I tell you how thrilled we are, you, we are that you are here? How much Jesus wants to change your life. Jesus wants to have fellowship with each and every sinner here today. It doesn't matter what you've done. His mercy is more. It doesn't matter what your past is. 
His grace is sufficient. It doesn't matter how bad your reputation is. Jesus' is better. He'll take you right to heaven. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Would you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and Father, again, this scene is sort of like one of those little pictures in the baby book of every believer. We might not have a memory of that day, but there is heavenly photographic evidence of the day when Jesus came and changed our lives. And our lives are now the composite of a collection of stories of encounters with divine grace. And oh God, we are so grateful that your mercy has met us and changed us and saved us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to become more committed agents of divine grace and mercy. Not that we will ever save anyone, but we are those heavenly heralds. We are the the mailmen of the Messiah carrying invitations far and near. Oh Lord, help us to do that in a way that is faithful, in a way that pleases you. And I pray especially right now, Lord, if there is any person here listening or watching from home and and, and they would just simply come to grips with the fact that their sin has separated them from you, that you would let them see that there's a, a Savior staring them in the eye, offering peace and assurance through his death and resurrection. Lord, remove every obstacle and bring sinners home. We ask in Jesus' name.